The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. Hello, my friend, and welcome to another episode of Negotiate Anything. Thanks for spending time with us today. It's listeners like you in 181 different countries that have made Negotiate Anything the most popular negotiation and conflict resolution podcast in the world. I'm your host, Kwame Christian. I'm a business lawyer, mediator, professor, and the director of the American Negotiation Institute. Before we get started, I have two quick questions for you. Is negotiation a critical part of what you do? Do you need to resolve conflict and persuade at work? If you answered yes to both of those questions, visit our website to learn more about our negotiation workshops. We've traveled the country working with professionals just like you, and we'd love to have the opportunity to work with you too. Check out the link in the description to learn more. John, thanks for joining us today. Kwame, it's great to be with you, my friend. Yeah, it's great to have you. So how about you get us started by telling us a little bit about yourself and what you do? So I uh, have the great honor of being the president of Otterbein University in Westerville, Ohio, school of about 3,000 students, professional programs, liberal arts, sort of everything that higher ed's supposed to be. I'm a little biased, of course. We have outstanding faculty in the MBA program. I don't know if you've heard about that, Kwame, but they they're really <laughs> are remarkable individuals. Uh, and I've been here, this is the end of my second year. I'm a junior now, and I was uh, president of another small college last, so I've been at this for a little while. Fantastic. Yes, I'm, I've been looking forward to this for a while. And um, for the listeners who don't know, yes, I do teach at uh, Otterbein's uh, in MBA program. Uh, now my class is going to be all online. So that's going to be an interesting challenge, but we're going to make it happen. And, and so I think that's a great segue for what we're going to talk about today. Because of course, the name of the podcast is Negotiate Anything. And John, you've been negotiating a lot of things since <laughs> the pandemic has started. Non-stop. Yeah, negotiating a pandemic. I sometimes have to remind people we were founded in 1847. So we have survived a civil war, two world wars, a pandemic. I mean, like Otterbein has been through this before, and we'll make it through this too. But it is certainly um, the largest crisis that certainly has ever been a part of my career. And the negotiation is very apt because it, normally, my job is uh, negotiation between the many different constituencies that we serve, but it is all on steroids right now. Like, uh, just briefly, our, our students, 90% of them want to be in person. That's sort of, you know, Otterbein is not a University of Phoenix all online kind of place. They, they want the Otterbein experience. Uh, on the other hand, we have a lot of faculty and staff very nervous about doing anything in person and think at least some think it's crazy to do anything in person. And so we are constantly weaving in between these different interests as we try to find the safest, best path, path forward for everybody. Yeah, tough situation. And so can you outline what the decision-making process in general would be versus what it is now? And I know that's hard to do um, because every decision is different, but in general, what does it look like and how have you had to adapt? Yeah. So in general, in normal times, uh, higher education is not known for its nimbleness, right? <laughs> we, are, we are a slow-turning big ship, uh, and we use a process called shared governance. And some business people look at this and think, you're nuts. How can you operate like that? But the reality is I think it actually makes us stronger that shared governance is designed that we are not a top-down driven organization, um, that 
most decisions, especially the major decisions, are vetted by uh, students, faculty, staff, alumni, our board of trustees. And so there's a shared power structure involved. And the, the faculty and staff and students each have their own governance structure with senates and assemblies and committees and the whole thing that consider proposals. Even our board of trustees at Ottermine has two student trustees, two faculty trustees, an alumni trustee. So even at the penultimate decider organization, the board of trustees, it, it has representation from all these different groups. And, and my job is mostly trying to get those wheels to move and move, you hope, in the right direction and, and more importantly, at the right speed so that the institution can be responsive to its environment. Um, but it, it, it is not always fast. But the, the pro to that is you build a lot of buy-in as you go, right? By the time you get to a decision, it has been thoroughly vetted, thoroughly understood. Everyone's had their voice in it. Even if they don't like the outcome, they can say, I, I was a meaningful part of this conversation. And I, so I think shared governance is good. But the reality is the last four or five months, uh, we make more decisions in a week than we typically do in a semester. And so uh, we are still using those structures. We're still getting input. Um, but people have understood it is just a different leadership environment uh, since we've been operating largely on a crisis footing. Right. And and to me, again, when you think about the uh, the amount of decisions that you're making in a short period of time, speed is a big consideration. So what types of things are you doing to increase the speed at which you're making the decisions while still making sure that people don't feel slighted through the process? Yeah, it's a great question, Carmen. The first thing I would say is we are trying to communicate, communicate, communicate. It is just pure transparency every step of the way. There are no secrets. There is no detail too small to not be shared. Uh, if you went to our, our website and clicked on our COVID-19 page, you would find more FAQs, more documents and plans than you could shake a stick at just because we want everything out in the world, no secrets, no surprises. Now, then one of the challenges is how do you summarize that so that your typical student or their family members or a faculty staff member who's not watching all this stuff every day, they get the right information at the right time. And so it's just about openness and transparency. It's also been a lot about trust, right? I, I've been very glad to see that um, our students, faculty, and staff 99% of the time have been very trusting of the decisions we've had to make. Uh, same thing with the Board of Trustees. And likewise, we've been able to trust uh, students, faculty, and staff to do the right things as we go. Because the reality is the only way this works is if we all do our part in making it happen. Uh, the example I've been using is, you know, we need to ask our students to observe social distancing and wear masks. It takes one big house party and we're all going home. I, I mean, like, it is just that environment. Everyone needs to do this right or else it will not work. And so you have to trust one another. Wow. And, and so for you, of the thousands of challenges <laughs> that come with this, um, let's, let's say you're thinking about uh, this podcast being heard by decision makers who are in the same type of situation. Uh, what are the biggest challenges that you faced in all of this? You're really, you're really making my job sound like a lot of fun. Thousands of challenges. How about thousands of opportunities, right? Um, now, I, I think it has the largest challenge by far has been dealing with just the unknown of the situation, right? There is no manual. This was not taught in my graduate school program. 
uh, the, 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 the running the university through a pandemic course I skipped. So I, I, I just don't know what they taught in that course. And the, the guidelines from the public health authorities change on a daily or even weekly you know, basis. It's just, and that's nobody's fault. It's just, we're all learning as we go about this virus and about what works and what doesn't work and what we have a vaccine or not and what a safe practice really is. And then the level of detail you have to work at. So, okay, how do you safely run a, an MBA class is different than how do you safely run a choir uh, or a theater performance or a football team? Uh, I mean, each one of these circumstances is completely different and the guidelines keep getting updated. And oh, by the way, add to the complexity, we're dealing with Franklin County Public Health. We're dealing with the state of Ohio. We're dealing with the CDC. We're dealing with the NCAA. Every profession's professional association has released guidelines. Uh, parents, students, faculty, staff are all watching the news and they all think that they know something, you know, and, and yet we're trying to deal with other sources. And so it is just sort of the, the, the ground constantly shifts. You're never standing on totally solid ground. All you can do is respond to what you know in the moment, knowing that tomorrow it's going to be a little different. Right. And even though you're just responding to what's happening, you're doing a great job of being proactive in the process by communicating at a high level and being more transparent because you think about it. Well, this is a, an episode based on school. So you know how in, in math, they all, the teachers always say, show your work, show your work. Yeah. I don't know yeah. if you got the right answer for the right reasons. And um, here, what we're doing by communicating throughout the process is we're showing our work. And so even if a person disagrees with the ultimate conclusion, they can see the process and the input that went into it. So they feel a little bit better about the decision, even if ultimately they don't agree. Yeah, I, that's that's very well said, and especially given the emotionality in this moment, right? There is a tension in the air, and um, I will say I hear from individuals who think this is no different than the common cold. This is all some conspiracy to get Trump or ruin our economy or whatever. And this is we just need to sort of power on through this thing. Other people who I hear from are absolutely convinced that if they step outside of their house, they will burst into flames. I, I mean, it is just... The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. In the last 100 years, we've seen financial markets swing, new currencies come and go, decades of savings lost in days, all showing that a retirement plan without a guarantee, quite simply, isn't enough. So more than a retirement plan, TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. A promise that pays off. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. Hi, I'm Tomer Korn, LinkedIn's Chief Product Officer. On my podcast, Building One, we dive deep into what it takes to build great products. Recently, we had Zach Perret, the CEO of Plaid, and he shared about his struggles building a financial app for consumers and how he was able to turn it all around with a critical pivot. Take a listen. I personally couldn't resonate as much with the consumer set that we were trying to reach. I just didn't have that level of empathy. When we made the shift to building a B2B product though, I was building the product that I wanted. My co-founder and I were creating the product that we wanted ourselves and we had so much empathy for what that product was. Such a great insight. You know, in that sense, we got lucky because we were, we were creating a thing for ourselves. And then the people that we were talking to also had the same problems we did. They were fintech developers. We'd been a fintech developer. Uh, we'd been trying to build a fintech product for a year. and so. 
We had such deep empathy. We had such a clear ability to... If you want to hear more of Zach Perret's story and the lessons that follow, listen and subscribe to my podcast, Building One. Both extremes here, and it comes from such a genuine place, right? It, that is what they believe. That is, that is their truth. And so one of the that acts of transparency showing your work, as you're saying, is we early on decided to peg ourselves uh, to the Franklin County Department of Public Health. Because we've got to say, this isn't about what you think or what I think. This isn't because John Comerford, as president of the university, thinks this about the coronavirus. It is about public health authorities who know more than whatever news you watch and whatever you may think. And so whether it is too restrictive or too open or whatever you think is the problem, it is pegged to an authority source that we think is above reproach. And and so that has been very important that whenever it starts to feel emotional on any side, we just sort of peg ourselves back to the professionals and we do exactly what they say to do. No more and no less. That's a really smart approach. And I think that's something that expands to any type of difficult conversation that we find ourselves in. And it shows really the the strategic value of humility, right? In this situation, we're recognizing, hey, I am not the expert. As such, I'm going to rely on the experts to inform what my decision should be. And so that gives you a lot of cover too, because you're saying, listen, I'm following the advice of people who know more about immunology and virology than I do. People, even if they don't agree with you, they can say, well, that, that makes sense. <laughs> that, that's yeah. reasonable. And then when you think about in terms of a negotiation, the terms legitimate and objective criteria come up over and over and over again. It's not enough to come to a conclusion, make a claim or anything like that. You also need to substantiate what you're saying with something that comes from a source that's legitimate, means it's respected by both sides, more or less, and objective. It's not on my side. It's not on your side. It's a third party that has no no horse in this race, and they're telling me what to do. And so saying that the public health, Department of Public Health is going to be our guiding, our, our guiding star here, I think that was a really smart move. Well, and it's an important that they've been good partners, right? It, it, it could be that a public health authority sort of gets dictatorial. Instead, Franklin County has been uh, sharing, hey, here's what we're worried about. We're worried about large groups, worried about social distancing. We're, they give us those guidelines and they say, given those constraints, Otterbein, what do you think is the best way to meet your mission? And then what we do is we put together our plan and we send it back to Franklin County and they tell us, yeah, that, that actually, that'll work. That, that, that makes a lot of sense. Or they've not been shy about saying, ah, no, I, I don't think that makes any sense. Uh, and you probably need to tighten it down in this way or the other way. But it, it is about their respect for us and our expertise as educators that they don't have and our respect for them as public health experts, expertise that we don't have, that come together so that we can make, meet our mission in a safe way. That's a great example. Yeah. And everybody's staying in their lanes. That's the beauty of it, right? It's not an easy decision, but it became a little bit easier by being willing to, to stay in your lanes. And I think in organizations, um, in relationships, there's always going to be a tension from people doing their jobs in the right way, from playing their roles appropriately. And I think there, it's like a necessary checks and balances system that's built into a lot of our organizations and relationships too. And there's going to be a bit of the tension, but you have to be willing to be open and have the conversation and figure out how I can try to meet my goals within these parameters that were set. 
Well, what you just articulated, I think about as, as being perceived and being an honest broker. That that sort of honesty, born of transparency, born of clear criteria, born of just being honest about what we're trying to achieve uh, and not beating around the bush and trying to manipulate and twist or whatever else, just being upfront about things, that buys you trust. Um, and, and in every negotiation, conflict, tough situation, being perceived as an honest broker is just worth its weight in gold uh, because uh, people can approach you in a way that allows you to find as best you can win-win solutions, as I know you and I have talked about before, and, and these sorts of opportunities that if you are perceived as manipulative or, for example, some universities have been accused of, well, this is all about the money. You just want the students to come back so you can have their room and board and have their, well, no. I, I mean, don't get me wrong. There's a huge financial impact here but we would never endanger a life. Uh, and we, we have a mission to meet. And frankly, if we fail to meet it, the consequences in the lives of our students are significant. If students have to end up dropping out of school or uh, many of our students picked Otterbein because they wanted to learn in a traditional environment, many of them are not well served by online classes. I mean, our faculty do a great job, but this is not our preferred modality, Right. There, there, is, there are some big things at stake here. And, and so being honest and upfront about what we're trying to accomplish brings people on board. Right. Oh, it makes a lot of sense. And, and especially going back to one of the things you said about emotionality, this is highly emotional for all people involved in the discussion. And that's to be expected. And one of the things that I've recognized over the course of my career and just thinking back into uh, back when I was studying psychology in school, in ambiguous situations, when people are highly emotional in a highly charged situation, if there's any ambiguity, psychologically, it's more likely for them to interpret that negatively. And by being transparent, you're making it more difficult for them to assume that negative intent with what you're doing. Because you're saying, this is how I got to the conclusion. No need to use your imagination here. Um, <laughs> this is what happened. But if you feel like you need to sh hide everything in a shroud of mystery, that's when you're going to lose a little bit of that public trust. And it's going to lead to a lot of unnecessary resistance with the decision that you're going to make. Well, and how important is, is it for, Otter, for places like Otterbein to act that way right now? At a time where I look at our politics and some of our other important conversations about, say, race and diversity and whatever else, and, and there's just these entrenched sides, right, that can't even perceive the other side as being valid, right? And, and so in our environment, if we ought to be anything, it ought to be a community that is able to have those tough conversations, that is able to teach and, and build into our future graduates and our future society's leaders that they can take these disparate pieces of information and understand because they arrived at it themselves what they believe as opposed to what somebody told them, right? And so the worst thing we could do as role models in a pandemic or in a Black Lives Matter movement or whatever else is going on is to just pretend like we have a corner on the truth, right? Well, this is the right answer, everybody. Instead, we need to facilitate a conversation, a dialogue. And, and that is what we're trying to, it's, it's what we do here is so much bigger than physics and Plato. Uh, we teach physics and Plato and they're important. Um, but we're trying to build human beings and leaders 
that our society needs. And so a lot of these principles we're talking about, about inclusiveness and decision-making and honesty and transparency is modeling what we hope these students go on to do as leaders in our world. Hey, I hope you're enjoying this episode. I just wanted to take a quick moment to let you know that in addition to our usual negotiation and conflict resolution focused trainings that we do for corporations, we also have added content focused on how to have difficult conversations about race. And so what we're doing is we're blending my background in civil rights along with my background in negotiation and conflict resolution to create a one of a kind training that is customized for your organization that helps you get through these difficult conversations. If you're interested, make sure to check out the link in the description to learn more. And now, back to the episode. It makes a lot of sense. And let's let's talk about maybe what if you were to get some pushback on this? What if somebody says, well, John, the thing is, these people don't need to know about the decisions that we we're going to make. They don't need to know about the process. We need to be nimble and move extremely quickly. Sometimes th- that communication takes time. So just make the decision and, and deal with the consequences. So for people who are more in that top-down type of uh, approach, uh, what would you say to them if they were kind of critiquing your performance here? Well, that's interesting because I would respond it is situational, right? There are times where decisions have to be made and be made quickly, right? Uh, back in March, uh, our campus was, was uh, underwent a cyber attack, right? We, we had a, a, a virus get into our system and whatever. And so in that moment where that cyber attack was happening, our chief information officer said, unplug every computer on campus, shut it all down, whatever, so that'll stop it from spreading, right? We did not convene a committee. He didn't even call me. He just did it because that moment called for decisive decision-making, and no one would question that, right? I mean, clearly, we don't need to convene a committee to have a conversation about and we went through everybody's office and unplugged everybody's computer from the wall. I mean, like that, we had to stop the spread of this thing. Um, and so there is, uh, that's on one extreme. On the other extreme is something like, um, we're going to make a change to the curriculum. That is where if, if you're a campus leader like me, and you start deciding that you know more about how to teach chemistry than the chemists, uh, I think you're probably way out of your depth, right? I mean, you've got to defer to the, the expertise. And especially with the faculty, it is a group expertise that comes together to form a, a curriculum at the undergraduate graduate level that creates the well-rounded graduate that we want. And so I would be very remiss to stick my nose in the middle of that as if I know more about these fields than they do. And then there's a lot in between, right? I'm always struck with, um, I, I could uh, certainly not as a top-down thing, unless we were truly under some crazy crisis, start meddling with the curriculum. But for example, we do things, let's say we change something about how we award financial aid. Well, that uh, we want to inform people, we want to have a conversation, but that I can get done in weeks, not even months. Um, because there's a deferral to the expertise of our enrollment management staff. Um, to do something in the curriculum takes a lot longer. And so it's situational. And uh, you, you never want to be in the situation where you're leading and you turn behind and there's nobody there. I, I love this answer, though, because first of all, as a lawyer, I love any answer that starts with it depends. And then <laughs> um, we revisited that point you said earlier about 
we need to stay in our lanes, defer to expertise. And I think the, the CTO example was really great. He knows he's the person who knows more than anybody else and has the authority in this particular realm. Let's move quickly. It's necessary. We'll deal with the consequences later. Uh, but then in, in other situations, you do have the luxury of a little bit more time. And in this situation with, with COVID, it might be a little bit more time. We don't need to immediately unplug all of our computers, but we could spend maybe a day, two, three, a week may, before we make this critical decision. But at the same time, you're deferring to the right people, to their expertise and bringing the right people into the conversation. You're, 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 you're changing the process as necessary based on the situation. And it's about being very conscious of that, right? I think leaders struggle in some of these situations, and I've seen it even in higher ed over the last four or five months, that having the wrong mode of operation at the wrong moment will really mess you up, right? And so um, it is even as the situation evolves. In June, when we had two, three months to plan for students to return in August, we had all sorts of committees and task forces and lots of people involved, and we wrote a great plan. And then literally, Kwame, this, this last week, Monday, uh, the Department of Health uh, reached out to us and said, you know, we're watching the infection rates and whatever. We would at this point recommend you think about a phased return. It was not part of our plan. And it is now August, right? And so we didn't really have time to reconvene the committees and do the stuff. We went from well, maybe you think about phasing on Monday to having an approved plan that we announced on Friday. I mean, we did this all in three or four days and had to figure out who was going to move in when, what class was going to start in person and remote when, how to communicate all this, how to get all the infrastructure in place to pull this off in three or four days. And so it's, it's even, I was talking to some of the staff this morning about it is now that we're in August, the next few weeks is going to feel a lot more like crisis management than June did, right? June, you still had time and space and whatever. Now it's going to be about adapting quickly as students are putting gas in their cars to come back to campus. It's just going to be a different way of making decisions. And so it's about knowing where you are and when you are and being adaptive to that moment. This is incredible. And I think this is a great chance for us to talk about decision-making in general and so not in terms of the process by which you reach a decision um, within an organization or the rational process to reach the correct answer, but I'm talking about the actual act of making a decision on a personal level. Because when it comes to decision making, people often struggle with that. And we see people, when it comes to procrastination, sometimes they just choose not to make a decision because they're afraid of committing. But choosing not to make a decision is in fact the decision <laughs> and it has consequences. And so for those out there who struggle with the process of decision-making, the actual action, what advice do you have for them? Uh, yeah. I, I mean, I, I just personally, since you asked it that way, especially in a situation like this, I, I feel myself put on the spot to make decisions on a regular basis I try to get as much information and feedback as I can, as time will allow, right? And especially when you're in a crisis and time is short and information is lacking, sometimes you got to make a decision and say, boy, I, I, I hope this is the right thing, right, for our situation. I hope this is the right thing for the future of the institution. But then I think, I'm not always great at this, but you've sort of got to say to yourself, 
I am, I am acting as that honest broker. I am not doing this for my own self-interest. I am not doing it because I have, I don't know, a grudge or some other illogical reason to make a call. That again, if you're asking people to trust that you are an honest broker trying to do the best you can with what you have in front of you, then trust yourself too. And, and try to sleep at night knowing, listen, I did the best I could with what I had in front of me. And hopefully it works out 90% of the time. But even the best decisions, the most well-studied decisions don't always work out the way you expect. That's actually going back to the idea of, of why you want to be as inclusive as you can, at least in our environment. Is I like this, I, I forget where I picked this up, some leadership course or book, I forget now. But whoever came up with it smarter than me and it wasn't me. Where the idea of uh, making a decision or trying to cause an action, if you pretend that the organization is a black box and on one end there's a crank and on the other end there's another crank, right? And it's you can't see the gears and stuff in between. And let's say what I want to do is if I turn my crank 45 degrees clockwise, what I want to happen on the other side is that crank to turn 180 counterclockwise. That's what I expect. But if I just go and do it without at all exploring how the gears connect to each other in the box, then the outcome on the other side might not be at all what I expect. And so the more you can understand the gears, the people, the organizations, the different contact points inside the box connecting the two levers, the more likely you can predict and achieve the outcome you want on the other side. And only a fool would just start cranking away on their side, having no idea what's going on inside that box, because what the outcome will be will not be what you expect or want. Right. And you know what's interesting about it, too, is that there's going to be another decision on the other end, right? One decision leads to another. And we're never going to have perfect information. But what we need to do is, is, just like you said, try to make the best decision that we can in this moment with the time, resources, and information that I have. And then as I gather intelligence through the actual process of executing on my decision, then I'll make the necessary micro adjustments down the other side. And for me, I know I've struggled sometimes with indecision and what it came down to was fear of failure. And so instead of trying to say, hey, Kwame, get over it. Just don't be scared. That's kind of hard to do. I said, I need to make sure that I'm fearing the right thing. And so instead of the fear of failure, I focus on the fear of regret. What would I regret not doing in this instance? And that usually is enough to compel me to take action. Even though I'm afraid, I'm still going to take that action and then make those adjustments as necessary so I can start to get closer to where I want to go on the back end. You know, that's now we're getting honest, Kwame. I love it because there is this fear, self-doubt, whatever you want to call it, that lives within most normal people. I I think if you don't have something like that in you sometimes, anyone who's totally self-confident about everything they do, I I just don't trust, (laughs) right? That, That I don't think that's a good sign. And it is about fearing, though, the right thing, right? Because the wrong thing to fear is I'm going to fail and, and I'll lose my job or whatever it might be. No, no, I mean, I don't want you to lose my job or lose your job or I don't want to lose my job or whatever. But I think that fear holds some people back from doing the right thing. And I think if your fear is about that self-interest, then you're not going to be making decisions in the best interest of the institution. Um, and, and at least I have to step back sometimes when it comes to those gut check moments, like, okay, 
This is going to be a tough one, but I really believe this is the right thing for the future of Otterbein University, the right thing for our students. And some people aren't going to like it, but we've done the input thing and we're just not going to get on the same page. It is about reminding myself that I am here in service to the future of this institution. And I'm going to go ahead and do that. And if, and if I end up being wrong, I don't think my worst case scenario is all that terrible, frankly. I mean, I can, I'll get another job and it'll be okay. My family's not going to be homeless. It'll be fine. Um, it'll all work out. And so you just have to, again, I say this like it's easy. It is not easy to overcome that fear sometimes, but I think that gets in people's way. Absolutely. And, and I think we have to start to reconceptualize the way that we think about fear and pain, discomfort, and those type of things. One of my uh, big-time pandemic quarantine accomplishments was teaching Kai how to ride a bike. And on the way to uh, the park, I said over and over and over again, I said, Kai, I want you to know this. You will fall, and it will hurt, but it needs to happen in order for you to, to get over this. And so once, it, once he fell, he wasn't scared. He didn't feel that pain and, and recognize it was something that he needed to pull back from, oh, this is a sign I'm on the right track. And so then with the decisions that you're making, well, I know I'm going to make some decisions that are hard. I'm going to get some criticism for it. But that means <laughs> that I'm doing something. It's to be anticipated. It's just part of the process. Well, it reminds me of when I uh, started my graduate program, the, my advisor and the lead professor in the program on the first day, and this was in my master's program, so right out of undergrad, you know, and right out of undergrad, we all thought we had this figured out, right? We had all gotten decent grades in college and whatever, whatever. And he said, uh, my job is to make you uncomfortable. If you are comfortable, you are not learning. And so he, he predicted the future. He said, there will be times you do not like me <laughs> and you do not like my feedback. Um, but if this was a walk in the park, then you would not have gotten your money worth. You would not have gotten the outcome that you're here for. And he was dead on right. And it's one of those trans transformational moments where, I mean, we're all built differently, right, Kwame? I, I have been in, in areas of discomfort, learning every day, and I'm, I've sort of learned to, to, that's just how I roll. I, I like that my, I love the phrase, may your, may your reach exceed your grasp. And, and all day long, my reach exceeds my grasp. And, and you know what? There are other people that are differently situated. And so people need to find the right role for them. But one of the things that bothers me is we assume we're all working for the same template, that my particular aspirations, my comfort levels, my fears, whatever, I look at someone else and I say, well, what's wrong with them? Why aren't they doing this? Well, they're a different person, right? And, and so long as they're finding a place where they're productive and happy, and I, I would never, ever question that. But for me, that discomfort is a, is a constant thing. But I know that the harder the situation I'm going through now, the better I'm going to be in my next challenge. Absolutely. And for you, as the president of Otterbein University, what was the most reassuring thing that you learned about your team, faculty, staff, and students throughout this whole ordeal? So for me, it was part of what I was checking out before I even took the job is I fundamentally believe that American higher education is broken. Uh, I believe that uh, rankings and elitism cause our institutions, state institutions, for-profit institutions, and not-profit institutions like Otterbein to do things that are bad for students and bad for society. Uh, and so I wanted to be the school that was willing to buck that trend and go its own way and do the right thing. 
for our wider mission of making this world a better place through access and affordability, serving traditionally underserved populations, and really bucking the trends in American higher education that draw most other institutions to chase after the exact same students. We needed to serve a different type of uh, population and have real diversity on our campus from all sorts of different backgrounds. And so I wanted to be at a place like that. Uh, my last place was a work college, right? So it had that in its bones. It was about all about access and affordability. And I didn't want to end up at just one other school trying to be more elitist than the school next door. That wasn't a compelling mission to me. And so to come to a place like Otterbein and do things like uh, be the only college in the state that says if your family income is $60,000 or less, we're going to meet your full need for tuition. That is so not an elitist thing to do. That's not going to bring you the 35 ACT who gets full rides to everywhere in the world. That's going to help the kid who's admissible and is college material, but is otherwise frozen out of the system, afford a world-class liberal arts education. And that I could come here and be a part of that and have, so far, knock on wood, very little pushback to that as a concept, to that as a mission, uh, because it's it's not just about me. Otterbein already had this do right, do the right thing before it's popular thing uh, in its DNA since its founding. Um, that I think that's been the most important thing to making me feel like I'm at the right place and feel like I'm making a difference every day. That's fantastic. John, two important things on that. Number one, it sounds like you need a podcast. <laughs> and, and <laughs> Hook me up, Kwame. You know people. <laughs> yeah, I know, I do. <laughs> and then number two, you know, it seems like if I were to choose a university to teach at on the side, I feel like Otterbein would be a good choice. So, so well, we, we should talk some more about that. You'd be really, be really great. I'll look into it. Well, John, thank you. This has been a lot of fun. And um, yeah, good luck. Actually, good skill. Um, I don't wish people luck. Good skill um, when it comes to uh, this school year. I know that uh, we're going to be nimble enough to pull it off. I'm excited to see what it looks like. Well, likewise. And thanks for all you're doing on campus and off, uh, lifting us all forward. I appreciate it, Kwame. You're doing great work. Congratulations, you've just joined an elite club. By listening to a full episode, you're now officially on the Negotiate Anything team. So welcome aboard. What most team members do is they subscribe to the podcast because that allows them to automatically get the latest episodes of the show. The best things in life lie on the other side of difficult conversations. Keep learning, keep practicing, and keep getting better. Your relationships will improve, your career will soar, and you'll have the confidence you need to get the most out of these crucial conversations. Again, thank you for joining the team. We're excited to have you, and I will see you in the next episode. I'll catch you later.